So I'll have a stand in a minute to read this passage of scripture. But before we do, just a few words of introduction. Um, We're going to be looking this morning at the story of the flood, um, which runs all the way from Genesis 6 to Genesis 8. Um, And this is a long section of scripture. I'm not going to have us read the whole thing. Um, We're going to just dive in right at the beginning. I feel fairly safe with this one that people basically know the shape of how this narrative works. Um, But we're just going to jump in at the very beginning of the story. And then as we go through, if you could do me a favor and just keep your Bibles handy, because we're going to be in and out of this text and also jumping around to a few other places to contextualize what we're reading. So I'm going to start with Genesis 6 verses 11 to 22. So if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. This is God's word to us this morning. You can be seated. Okay, so let's begin with a word of caution here. This is an example of a passage where we are really apt to come to it with questions that make sense to us and we demand, we expect the passage to answer those questions. Did this really happen? If so, when? Was it really universal? Did it really cover every mountain on earth? How was the ark actually constructed in terms of the equipment necessary to to build it, to cut and join the timbers and put the pieces in place? How did it hold together being so vast? Immediately you can see those kind of questions are going to lead us down a particular road as we think about this passage with lots of speculation, lots of math, lots of controversy, right? Is that where the Bible wants us to go this morning? Well, I think the answer to that question is probably not. Um, so we're going to take a different tack, and it's a tack that Rod has been tacking with you as we've been going through this series, which is trying not to force the Bible to answer questions that we want it to answer, but rather to listen attentively to the questions it wants us to ask, right? And so I think as we approach this, that's the right way to tackle it. And this is a really important discipline, actually, in the Christian life. 
we get used, hopefully, to the idea that the Bible doesn't necessarily answer all the questions we would like it to ask. A couple of weeks ago, I was really struggling to get my phone to sync photos with my desktop computer. Is the Bible going to tell me the answer to this question? It was a really pressing question for me. No. Okay, let's say that boldly. No, there are certain things on which the Bible is silent. It's silent on the question of how to sync photos on my iPhone to my desktop. Now, it doesn't mean it's silent on all issues of relevance to that. It maybe teaches me to be thankful that I even have a phone. Um, maybe I should be dependent on the Spirit for help when I'm two hours in. I still can't get the photos to sync and I want to throw the thing through the window. Um, but um, it, the Bible doesn't tell me how to do it, does it? Okay, trick, trickier one. How about you're trying to figure out who to marry? Should the Bible be expected to tell you specifically who to marry? I wrote in my notes here, should I marry Brian? And, I, and then I realized Brian Sickman was here in the congregation. So uh, there might be someone called Brian here, but anyway, if you're just an illustration, I'm not picking on you. Um, or, or should you marry Brianna if, if you're of the, the opposite sex? Well, well, sadly, the answer is the same as it. The Bible doesn't tell you whether to marry Brian or Brianna. The Bible has lots of really important things to say about the question of deciding to get married and deciding who you might marry or dealing with singleness. But there is no kind of magic code in the Psalms where if you take the first letter of the second sentence of every third Psalm and you put together, it says B-R-I-A-L. Brian, it's you, Brian. Uh, it just doesn't do that. The Bible is not about who you should marry, right? Okay. I said in the first, there is an exception to this. The Bible does have a verse that says you shall go out with joy. So if you're tempted to ask a nice girl called Joy out, do do that. That's in the Bible. Um, <laughs> but okay, so we've got to get used to this discipline, right? And making sure that we ask the Bible the questions it wants to ask. So what questions does the Bible want us to ask about the flood? It does deal very briefly with some of the things that occur to us, but not much. There isn't actually a single verse in the Bible that really gets down to the details of how the flood happened because the Bible simply assumes it. Was it universal? Well, the Bible says, yes, it was. But the human writer and the human reader's concept of the universe at that stage probably didn't stretch more than 200 miles in any direction, so that doesn't help us much either. How was the ark actually constructed from an engineering perspective? We literally have no idea. We're clearly then talking about an immense catastrophic event sometime in early human history, and that's something which is actually attested in other forms of culture and literature, isn't it? In the Epic of Gilgamesh, from the Babylonian culture, they have a very similar story. In Hindu mythology, there are stories of large parts of the world being washed away. Plato's Timaeus tells the famous story of Atlantis of a culture that was washed into the sea, never to be seen again. So there are many other examples, but that's about as far as we can go with that stuff. So what does the Bible want us to ask? How does it want us to use our time this morning as we engage with this really important text? Well, first up, I think the flood story is designed to get us thinking about human accountability. Human accountability. That's something I take it most of us don't want to hear. But it is the most obvious reality that's shouting out of this text that just, you know, debates about the construction of the ark are not really going to help us with. In the Noah's Ark story, God holds the world to account. He takes the world that he's made in Genesis 1 and he wipes it clean of almost all life. 
And the reason is the corrupt state of human beings. We're not left wondering why this happened. The Bible tells us absolutely plainly. So it was there in the passage that I read. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And that's repeated again and again as you go through these chapters. Because of them. It's our issue. That's the reason why God is going to cleanse the earth. It's because he's holding us to account. Now, what do we think of that? How could he do it? You know, we're thinking about vast numbers of men, women, and children. People maybe who have had plenty of time in life to kind of consolidate uh, an anti-God stance, but maybe others not so much. Isn't that God a monster? How can we believe in such a God? That's the question the Bible wants us to get to grips with, isn't it? You see, the Bible looks at us and it says, just think about that really carefully before you come to that conclusion. The Bible wants to say that God is justified in his actions. I want to spend a little bit of time just developing that and think about why that's so. What's happening here is not murder. This is not one human being taking the life of another. This is God withdrawing the lives of people who receive them from him as a gift initially and who have enjoyed every day of their lives since then as an expression of his mercy. I think a a diagram will help with this, so bear with me while we just get this up on the screen here. So um, if you just refresh that. Nice. Okay, so this line here, Forgive my handwriting, but I'm going to call this normal life. And what I mean here is normal life as in what you're expecting tomorrow morning. Um, Sorry, that's terrible writing. Um, um, That didn't improve much, did it? Anyway, um, normal life. Um, What you're expecting tomorrow morning, I, I imagine if it's normal, it'll be much like last Monday. Same job, hopefully roughly same state of health, same friendship, same family, normal. The good things that you enjoy normally. And the way that we tend to think about the world is then if suddenly you were to have a stellar Monday, and let's hope that you all do, but if you have a stellar Monday, you walk into work and your boss says, hey, I've got great plans for you. Here's a promotion or here's a pay rise. Or one of your friends says, I just, I'm going to get married. Or, you know, or you, you know, make plans to go on a holiday. All of this is blessing, right? So when things are better than normal, we call that blessing. And when things are worse than normal, So say you go and you have a horrible Monday. Say you go into work tomorrow morning and the boss comes in and says, I'm sorry, but we've run out of money. I'm going to have to let you go. Or actually, the friend who you you hope was going to um, uh, get engaged, it it doesn't work out. Or um, your holiday falls through. Then we might be tempted to call that cursing, right? Things have been taken away from me that I, I thought were mine and now they've gone and I feel really cross about that. This is the way that we think about the world, isn't it? We have a norm that we expect just to continue. And anything better than that is blessing, but anything worse than that is kind of having things that I deserve taken away from me. Now, before we develop this too far, I just want to kind of explore what this means. You see, this puts us in a really fragile position in life. Because guess what? If you do have a stellar Monday and you do get that raise, how long will it be before what you perceive to be blessing is now going to become the new normal? I would say probably about 15 minutes the boss comes into your office and says, you've got this raise. 
And now this becomes normal life. And 15 minutes later, if he comes back into your office and says, oh, I'm terribly sorry, accounting error, actually that was for the person down the hallway from you, you haven't got a raise. You'd be like, what? Like, that's terrible, that's cursing now, okay? So now can you see that now that I've received this blessing, now that's my new normal, and it takes something better than that for there to be blessing in my life now. And anything less than that is cursing. And can you see how unstable a life that is? That again and again and again, we're ratcheting up the expectation of what normal is and what blessedness looks like. And that's a recipe for entitlement and that's a recipe for bitterness. So now look at the way the the Bible thinks. So the Bible just redraws that on a totally different set of axes. The Bible says, okay, here's normal life. Just the way I drew it the first time. And here's my good Monday. Okay? A tiny, tiny little extension of blessing over a massive, yawning, kind of like a, a wealth of blessing that I'm receiving every moment. The Bible says that literally every breath you draw, every beat of your heart, every day you open your eyes in this amazing world with all of its stability, with all of its good things, that's a gift from God to you that you do not deserve. God has given it all to us. God has created it. God sustains it. And so we go on this journey of little blessings and little losses of blessing, but hopefully we can do it always remembering that actually what happens is happening against a a background of massive net blessing. Now, I want to just kind of land on this for a moment because this is such an important lesson in the Christian life and I would really encourage you to grasp this. I was sick for just over 10 years from my mid-20s to my mid-30s, for a large part of that not able to walk. And this principle totally rescued me from the Bible. Because what it says is that when the wheels come off, when you have a terrible Monday, when you suddenly get rushed to hospital, when your lungs collapse, when you can no longer go to your employer, that's what happened to me, you have... You are, you are no longer as, as blessed as you were. And so you can mourn that. You can acknowledge that as a real loss. You don't have to just be stoic about it. You can acknowledge that. You can grieve over that. It's a real loss. But even at the moment that you say, I'm not as blessed as I was, you can still say, but I'm still blessed. I'm still blessed. People used to say to me, Neil, oh, it's terrible that you've got this illness, you know, um, and that your life is on hold. You know, like in... And we're just hoping that one day you'll get better and you can restart. It's like, that's a catastrophic thing to say to someone who's suffering, isn't it? That life can only begin again when normality is restored. But the Bible says to us, wherever we find ourselves, whether we're at the top of the mountain or whether we're actually struggling or dying even, God says your life is significant because every single beat of your heart is a gift from God to you and you can be thankful for it. Now, that's the background to what's happening in the flood story, isn't it? We're dealing here with a whole society of people who have been living this normal life. And there came a day when God said, game over. Was God unjust to these people? No, the net result of their whole life was a massive area of blessing that he experienced. Some of them more, some of them less, but all of them blessing. They had been privileged to be part of this amazing creation that God had given And actually, it's more than that, isn't it? Because we said this is an accountability story. Because in response to this massive area of blessing that these people had experienced, the truth is, where was the thankfulness that was due? 
You know, Jesus tells the parable of the tenants, doesn't he? Saying, our world is like a, a vineyard that's been rented out to us. Where's the fruit? Where's the thankfulness? Where's our appreciation of the fact that literally every single thing we have is God's discretion and gift and goodness to us? God is totally within his rights to withdraw our lives, I'm afraid to say. God has withdrawn the life of every single person who's ever died. That doesn't make him unjust. You know, if you go to the book of Job, here's a super important verse for you. Job 34, verse 14. It says, if it were God's intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, what do you think comes next? You have a bad Monday? No, it says, if it were God's intention and he withdrew his spirit and his breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. That's how dependent we are. And that's what we're seeing here in the flood. God doesn't owe us ongoing existence. God is giving it to us graciously every day. Okay, so it's an accountability story. But it's more than just an accountability story. It's also a story which is talking about God's uh, desire and aptitude to save. Actually, when you read through Genesis 6 to 8, and you might want to do this in your own time this week, you'll find that it takes much more time in that passage to talk about what God does to save Noah than it does to talk about the accountability of the world. God makes an elaborate provision to rescue Noah and his family from the flood repeatedly again and again. Chapter 6, 19 to 21. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 7, verses 7 to 10. Chapter 7, verses 13 to 16. God is going to send a flood, but... He's giving Noah an ark and Noah is to take his family and one pair of every animal with him to deliver them. And that should strike us, shouldn't it? Because God could simply bring the whole story of creation to an end at this point. He'd be completely within his rights to do it. He doesn't have to send a flood. God could send an asteroid. God could literally blow the whole thing to smithereens if that's what he wanted to do. But it's not what he wants to do, is it? God is in the business of deliverance in this story. God makes a way to protect humanity from the consequences of their rebellion against him. It's an elaborate way. It's a very specific way. And it's not as if it's kind of um, an accident, is it? It's not like God is so taken up with the production of all of this water and kind of navigating this kind of massive catastrophe that he doesn't notice that a little boat has just kind of made it out of the disaster. And like, oh, that was a surprise. I wasn't expecting those guys to be there. No, God warns Noah in advance, doesn't he? He tells him specifically what he wants him to do. God commands Noah to enter the ark. God shuts the door. And God calls him out when they land again on the, the dry land. So this is not some flash in the pan. And actually, you see that as we go on through the Bible story. This story becomes a motif that's repeated again and again to explain to us that God is a delivering and a saving God. You don't have to look that far. Just flip over the boundary of the book into Exodus and in the very first story in Exodus where you hear about Moses' deliverance, when Pharaoh threatens to have all the baby boys thrown into the Nile, and Moses' mum puts him in a little basket to deliver him, do you know that in the passage that the word that's used for the basket is an ark? Moses' mum puts him in an ark, picking up that saving thread from this story. Or the same thing when we reach the Red Sea, God delivers all of his people through the churning waters. He brings them up safely out of it, but the waters wash away Pharaoh and his army. The same thing is with us even when we reach the New Testament. In 1 Peter, we read that the ark 
In the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. But this water symbolizes the baptism that now saves you as well. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're being told that this is a picture of what it looks like for God to be a saviour. It's a striking, consistent picture. God doesn't have to do this. He's completely within his rights to withdraw the privilege of life in this world from us. If he withdrew our lives right now, we could have no complaints. We would still all be net debtors to his mercy. But the Noah's Ark, tells, Noah's Ark story tells us that's, that's not all there is to say, right? God has the right to withdraw our lives. But this story tells us he has the inclination to preserve them. In fact, one of the tasks that we read that Noah is given when we hear about him in the New Testament is that he was told to preach to his neighbours, to encourage them to join him, because God has that inclination to save. Okay, so, so far we've heard it's an accountability story. It's a saving, it's a delivering story. These are questions that the Bible wants us to wrestle with, but there's one more question that I think it wants us to wrestle with here, and it's prompted by the fact that this passage doesn't look just forward to all the amazing things God's going to do in future, but it also looks back, back into the parts of the Genesis story that you guys are all familiar with from this series. Let me give you a glimpse of that. In Genesis, um, where are we now? In Genesis chapter, so in chapter seven, verses one and two, we're told, sorry, um, let me check what verse this is. I feel bad not giving you the proper references. So in Genesis 7, so I'm going to read the little section that begins at verse 13. On that very day, we're told that Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. And they had with them, listen to this, every wild animal according to its kind. All livestock according to their kinds. Every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind. And every bird according to its kind. Does it remind you of anything? It sounds like Genesis 1, doesn't it? And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And it was so. This story is kind of reminding us of creation. Well, think about how the animals come to be in the ark in the first place. I don't know what you imagine this. If you've, if you've had too many children's Bible stories, maybe you might imagine Noah kind of going out with a lasso, trying to kind of like grab two of each element. It must have, that's why it took so long, you know, um, or like going out trying to rugby tackle a kangaroo or something like that to, you know, to bring it onto the ark. But actually that's not what the passage tells us three times in this section of scripture. In chapter six, verse 20, seven, verse nine, and seven, verse 15, we're told that God called the creatures to Noah. And again, that should be making you think, ooh, that sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it? Didn't God call the creatures to Adam so that he can name them? And actually, if you think real carefully about what's happening in Genesis 2 when Adam names the creatures, it sounds like God calls them to him two by two in pairs, male and female. Because the whole point of that story, isn't it, is that when Adam sees that there's Mr. Kangaroo and Mrs. Kangaroo and Mrs. Beaver and Mr. Beaver, but there's no Mrs. Adam, that it makes him kind of, he's prepared then for the creation of Eve. What about the way that this whole thing happens? The original creation is creation up out of the swirling waters, isn't it? Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. That's how the creation account begins. And now we've come back to exactly the same place, haven't we? 
out of the swirling waters, God delivers Noah and his family. And then finally, the, the concluding words of the Genesis creation story are these famous words from Genesis 1.28. We call them the creation mandate. God blessed Adam and Eve and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And then God says pretty much exactly the same thing to Noah at the end of this text, Genesis 8.17. Bring out every kind of creature that's with you in the ark, the birds, the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground so that they can multiply on earth and be fruitful and increase in number. Can you hear that resonance of Genesis 1? Why? What's going on? Why do we have all these parallels? Well, they're here to get us to ask this really important question. And this is the question the Bible really does want us to ask. Is this story a new creation? Is this a new beginning? It certainly feels like the whole thing is deliberately set up to create out that outcome, doesn't it? God chooses one person who's outstandingly righteous, Noah. A righteous and blameless man, Rod, I think last week pointed out, he's one of only three men in the whole Bible who's described as righteous and blameless. And he's obedient to God's instructions, even when they're incredibly difficult, even when the building of the ark is done after all of those hard yards of doing it, God can still describe him as a righteous man in his generation. And so it feels like what we're going for here is he kind of, you know, he, he picks up all these echoes of the creation story. He picks the one righteous person with which to begin. It feels like what we're going for here is creation mark two, doesn't it? It feels like creation reloaded. It feels like going back to my little iPhone example that God has been working his way down through the settings pages of creation. He's found the button that says master reset. Boom, master reset. Like, let's just put it back the way that it was and try and make all that bad stuff go away. And yet when we get out the other side of this, we come to a very striking discovery. God looks out at this newly cleansed world and the very first thing that he says in Genesis 8.21 is this. Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is, present tense, is evil from childhood. And we're like, what? What? You know, just come on, give me that one again. Like, surely that can't be what you mean. Like, we've just gone to incredible efforts to cleanse the earth, literally put the entire surface of the earth, if you put all the the timing together in this passage, for over a year. All of these people's lives have been lost. The entire thing has been reset to the beginning. You've picked the very best person. Now you're telling me, like, right from the get-go that it's just as wrong now as it was when the whole thing started. Are you nuts? But that's the point, isn't it? The point of the story is that even after the destruction of the entire world and this mind-blowingly elaborate provision of a means of salvation in an ark, nothing has changed at all. The same verdict that applied to humanity before the flood in all its corruption and depravity applies to humanity after the flood. Noah brought the infection with him. The problem wasn't just outside the ark, was it? The problem was inside the ark. And so Paul tells us in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. 
There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Sadly, Noah himself is going to prove this to us in the very next story when he gets drunk and lies naked and stupefied in his tent and then blames his sons for the consequences. So there's more going on here, isn't there, than just a revelation of God. This is not just a revelation that God is right to call us to account or that God has an inclination to save. This is a revelation of who we are, of what we're like. Hear this. God doesn't say he won't flood the earth again because he regrets what he did. It's easy to think that that's what's going on, isn't it? That God looks at it and just says, oh, I was just having such a primitive deity moment then, you know, but now I realize if I'm going to be a respectable citizen of the modern world, I need to get with the whole gentle Jesus, meek and mild thing, so I'm sorry, I'll never flood the earth again. Here's a nice rainbow. No, God pledges not to flood the earth again because it didn't work. There is no salvation outside a total fundamental remaking and rewiring of the human heart. That's the point of the flood story, isn't it? It's there to teach us the depth and the profundity of the impact of what just happened in Genesis 3. There is no reset option, however vast or elaborate, that can deal with it. There is no solution that says, look, oh, if only this whole group of people with all of their objectionable views were just wiped out, then everything would be fine. No, that's not Christianity. The problem is us. We are the problem. We've got to look in the mirror and say, it's me. There was a famous feature in the 1950s. The Times in London ran an editorial over several weeks entitled, What's Wrong with the World? Um, and they had various experts um, contribute to this, and they also solicited letters from the public. And the famous Catholic um, journalist and writer, G.K. Chesterton, wrote in a very famous response to this in answer to the question, what's wrong with the world? He simply wrote, Dear Sir, I am yours sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. I don't know where you put your hope for improvement in the world, for social change, for a better future, Perhaps in education, education can do a lot. Perhaps a change of government, change of government can do a lot. Perhaps maybe a new and less angular kind of theology, a Christianity that's not so socially awkward, that maybe just soft pedals some of the awkward things that the Bible says are just a little bit easier to get on with. It doesn't make too many bold claims. Well, on the strength of this text, can I just gently encourage you to consider the actual reality is that it won't work. It won't work. Seriously, if the flood didn't work, do you really think your plan will work? Nothing you can teach yourself or others, nothing in the electoral program of your favorite presidential candidate is going to change the fundamental reality of human existence. And there is a limit to how much good any of these things can do. Our hearts are inclined towards evil folks. That's the problem. The only thing that can change that is a change of the heart itself. So where does all that leave us? Well, we've seen that we're we're tenants in God's world, aren't we? And he's right. He's within his rights to withdraw that tendency and to call us to account for our behavior. We see that God has a right to withdraw life, but also an inclination to preserve life. And yet we've seen that the most dramatic physical salvation in history doesn't seem to be able to change 
the underlying problem. God looks throughout the whole world. He finds a single person who's most worthy of his favour. And yet when he sets them up as the beginning of a new humanity, it's just the old humanity. Every true son or daughter of Adam and Eve deserves to pass under the flood in the end, not to float unscathed over it. It doesn't help in the end. Which leaves God with what? The asteroid? Simply blowing the whole thing away to smithereens? Can you seriously think of a better option for us? But actually, at the very heart of the Bible story, we find there is another way. There's a deeper magic, as C.S. Lewis famously described it in my own city. There is something unexpected, something heart-rendingly wonderful and terrible. The truth that God will not resort to total destruction in the end because he is a redeemer. That is who he is. And so as the Bible develops, we find that this is the story that he's determined to tell. That even though every human being deserves to pass under the flood, he will take our place under that flood to spare us. He will give us new hearts, even if the cost of it is living with and dying for the consequences of the wickedness of our hearts himself. That's the true end game of the Noah's Ark story. And I think actually you can see this really, really clearly now that you're primed to know what to look for in Luke's gospel. So just as we finish, turn with me to Luke chapter three. This is a fun thing about being an educator in Oxford. My research project is Luke's gospel. I get to tell non-Christian students this kind of stuff all the time. It blows their doors off. Um, So... um, This is the moment in the story when Jesus of Nazareth is about to step onto the stage to begin his public ministry. Really an astonishing moment in human history, isn't it? You know, kind of the apex of the whole thing. And all of us will know that God sends a trailblazer ahead of Jesus called John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is, um, yeah, he's, um, he really makes an impact, (laughs) let's say, Um, You know, right from the get-go, the very first words of John that are recorded in Luke's gospel are these. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Woo, okay. That's not the way to win friends and influence people, is it? But (laughs) this is John's strategy, and it just keeps going. A few verses later, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, whose straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We've got a category for this. This is apocalyptic prophecy. This is what you see in the Old Testament from Amos and Joel and Zechariah. The expectation that John is coming into this too is that we're about to see the end of the world. This is John's model. John thinks that when Jesus comes, he's going to roll the whole of history up and stand there and say, right, it's judgment day. Are you with me or are you not? That's what he thinks is going to happen. He's expecting that when Jesus arrives on the scene, that we're going to see everything stop. 
everything end, everyone be called to account through all history. And that's exactly what it seems is about to happen, isn't it? Have you ever spotted this before? So just look down with me at Luke 3. Immediately after we get this apocalyptic vision of what's about to happen, we read this in Luke 3, 21. When all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, the heavens were opened. Like if you've been reading Genesis 6, you should know what comes next. Genesis 6 says the heavens were opened and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights and everyone was destroyed. And now it seems ready to happen again, doesn't it? John has said the end of the world is nigh and here it is. Jesus has come and catastrophe is coming. The moment of truth for the wicked tenants has arrived. God is tearing the heavens and coming down, as it says in Isaiah. It's the flood all over again. But then follow that logic forward. Jesus was baptized, and as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form as a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What's going on here? Well, right after the heavens are open, we, we do see someone go down under the flood, don't we? We see Jesus himself expressing solidarity with the whole fallen, broken world that he's made going under those waters under which we have to go. But then he emerges from the water and just like the Noah story, a dove comes and settles on him. And I think that's irresistibly pointing us to this conclusion that this man now is just like the dry land that emerged after the flood. This is a place on which judgment has fallen and on which judgment will never fall again. And if you attach yourself here, just like Noah and his family, once they set foot on that land where the dove had landed, that was safety. God pledged, I will never judge this world again like that. And now with Jesus, we have the opportunity, don't we, to attach ourselves to him. Because over him, uniquely, I think, we hear these words, I will never again destroy all life. I will never again flood the earth because Jesus has endured the flood for us. For all his righteousness compared to his contemporaries, Noah couldn't escape accountability before God in a physical boat, could he? He brought his heart problem with him. Despite God's intricate reenactment of the creation story, Noah couldn't be the beginning of the old humanity because he was just a survivor. He couldn't couldn't begin a new humanity because he was just a survivor of the old. But none of those limitations apply to us as followers of Jesus. You know that. Our claim is that we will survive God's accounting. Not because we aren't wicked tenants. We are. But our claim is that we have passed through the accounting in Christ. And in him, we are no longer what we were. Paul says it well, doesn't he, in Galatians 2. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So our hope then is not our righteousness. It's not our being blameless. It's not however good we do, however impressive or patchy that might be. Our hope is not in ridding the earth of people who disagree with us. Our hope is only Jesus. Jesus is our place of safety. We see in him the place where we can safely attach ourselves because that's the place where judgment has already fallen on the cross. And if it's fallen there, 
it cannot and it will not fall again. God has the right to call every single one of us to account and we absolutely cannot endure that on our own. Anyone here think they're better than Noah? But Jesus endured it in our place. He was drenched and drowned in that flood so that we wouldn't have to be. And now he's our only place of safety. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this passage from the the real depths of history that shows us the profundity of our problem, that not even a, a, a cataclysmic event like this, not even something that seems as close to a full reset as you could possibly imagine, not even that can sort us out. And we repent of our folly in thinking that Anything less than that could be a solution. We are the problem. And this passage points us to that, help us to accept that painful but accurate diagnosis of ourselves. And yet we pray that as we look forward and see the way that these themes play out through scripture, help us to cherish that day when Jesus came forward to to baptism. Help us to treasure that fact that the heavens were open, that the flood was poured out on him, that he went under the waters. He died ultimately. He didn't float across the surface of our sorrows. He went under them in our place and bore them all. But now we see him risen and ascended, a place, a person where judgment will never fall again. And help us then, Lord God, to be in him like Noah was in the ark. Help us to be in him. Shut us in to Jesus. Help us to trust him. Help us to find our deliverance and salvation in him. Because where judgment has fallen once, it will never fall again. Amen.